Psalm 63, 1. O God, you are my God. I earnestly search for you. My soul thirsts for you. My whole body longs for you in this parched and weary land where there is no water. O God, you are my God. I earnestly search for you. My soul thirsts for you. My whole body longs for you in this parched and weary land where there is no water. This is the word of the Lord. I don't know if it's possible to correctly describe the priority of a lifestyle of seeking God. I'm not sure how to correctly convey that. The priority of a lifestyle of seeking God. It seems really hard for me to know how to talk about, um, and yet I can't help but yearn for it myself. Seek his face, my heart says of you. I will indeed seek you. These are the kind of things that you find the psalmists just saying. I want to be very clear that when scripture is saying things like, seek his face, yeah, that's in the imperative, grammatical sense. You could say, well, that's a command. We're called to seek his face. That's not how it was written. It wasn't an external command. It was an internal yearning. We're we're designed to be close to the Lord. We were made to be God's kids in close fellowship. And when that's removed or diminished, we long for it. Like a child that doesn't have food or a baby that's crying to be fed, our souls start to talk. It's a really interesting thing because it seems to me like the more we seek God, the more we find, and the more we find, the more appetite awakens. You know, certain, certain natural desires is when they're fulfilled, they disappear. When I eat, I feel full and I don't want to eat anymore. In fact, no matter how good the food is, eventually I'm going to say, uncle, you know. Like I can handle about four pieces of Grotto's Baker's Choice because they cut their pizza slices big. If I eat five, I kind of enjoy that fifth piece, but I regret it for the rest of the evening. You know what I mean? And then I walk around and I'm like, I made a mistake. That fourth one was like, that's enough. And that fifth one was like, you can handle it. And I was like, I want to, but... But with the Lord... When you come out of a season of intensely arranging your life to meet the grace of God, and you do, because all human activity, again, is designed to meet the grace of God and be filled by it, right? Again, grace is not the opposite of of effort. It's the opposite of earning. Grace is not a passive word. It's an active word. Receiving is not the opposite of striving. Paul said, I work harder than all of you, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. So, And even the word that they're going to talk about downstairs with the kids this morning on come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest 
It's a word of grace, but you have to come. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me. There's three things of human activity, putting ourselves in a position to meet the grace of God and be filled by it. And we Protestants especially really struggle with this, our idea of we have to do something because we start to think, oh no, we, we thought we were saved by grace. We are. But grace is not passive. I should say it's not received passively. It's received actively. All human activity is designed to meet the grace of God. And again, I'm sort of recapping a little bit here. So when you hear the scripture say, really it's just David yearning, you're my God. God, you're my God. What does that mean? You're the one who's here for me. You're the one I depend on. You're the one who upholds me. You're the, you're the goal of my life. You're the thing I'm seeking. You're the thing I'm worshiping. You're the foundation of everything for me. You're my God. I look to you for everything. I look to you in everything. I live from you toward everything. I live through you toward everything. If, if, like, if we get the whole idea of what does it mean to have someone, something be a God, that, then this whole thing of passivity and activity sort of sorts itself out. Because humans always seek what they love. The heart can't handle a vacuum. You're either going to be intentionally choosing what to seek or involuntarily you'll be pulled by desire for something to be your God. Right? We, we, I'm, this is recap. This is simple stuff. But I don't think I can properly express the, the, the importance of a lifestyle, if we're going to be healthy followers of Jesus, the importance of a lifestyle of intentionally seeking God. Now, I don't know what that means for you because each of us is different. We're designed different. Our personalities are different. The ways in which we naturally connect the best with Jesus, Garth calls it spiritual pathways. The ways in which each of us is designed to connect best with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is in some sense very dependent on our personality profile. Sometimes it can be dependent on our history. We might not have enough healing yet to receive God certain ways and God is patient and he'll meet us where we can receive him while we work toward healing but our part remains the lifestyle of disciplined pursuit intentionally seeking God well what does that mean if he's everywhere What are we seeking to find? Paul's speech in Acts chapter 17. This is what Paul says when he's hanging out with people who they haven't heard about Jesus yet. He finds a statue that says to an unknown God and he says, I'll tell you what that's about. There's a yearning in your culture for something you don't know. And I'm here to tell you what that's about. Which that's good. That's good by the way. Like Paul doesn't just show up and say, y'all are all stupid and lost. Y'all are all going to hell. That would pretty much burn all the bridges at the beginning of the interaction, wouldn't it? So what Paul is doing is he's looking for areas in which their current worldview has connecting points to the Lord. 
rather than starting with, you're, you're, you're wrong and I'm right. Even though that was largely true. <laughs> so he starts with their culture and he builds bridges. This is what he says. He says, Acts chapter 17, 24 through 28, he is the God who made the world and everything in it. Since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in man-made temples. And human hands can't serve his needs, for he has no needs. He himself gives life and breath to everything, and he satisfies every need. From one man he created all the nations throughout the whole earth, and he decided beforehand when they should rise and fall, and he determined their boundaries. His purpose was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, though he is not far from any of us. For in him we live and move and exist. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Several things real quick. He doesn't live in man-made temples. One of the most scary things that the Lord does is he breaks us of our best ideas of him. And I say scary because for me it was scary and still is. The person of Jesus is not equivalent to my ideas about Jesus. The person of God is not equivalent to my best, most carefully studied, biblical, exegetically derived theology. So not only does he not dwell in temples made of human hands, he does not dwell in theologies made of human thoughts. He is a living reality in which I live, in whom I live. And I have to do with one who is so beyond that he dwells mostly in the area of mystery, though he reveals himself primarily through Jesus. So it's not that I can't know him, it's that I can't idolatrize, if that's a word, someone help me with the grammar on that. How do you spell that word? Whatever. Idolize my thoughts of him. My thoughts of the Bible. My thoughts of morality. Like at some point, we're going to find that Jesus scandalizes us like he scandalizes Peter. Because he'll accept someone we aren't ready to accept. Or he'll condemn someone we're ready to celebrate and affirm. And yeah, the Lord does condemn things. That was, that was all an aside. That he doesn't live in man-made temples. And he doesn't live in man-made theology. And by the way, I'm for theology... I'm for sound doctrine. I work hard to measure my doctrine by truth, by scripture. But I'm always aware of the limits of that, of that endeavor. That he's beyond. He's better than the best thoughts of him any human has ever had. He's greater than the best prayers to him anyone has ever prayed. Okay, but his purpose was for the nations to what? To seek. I think that's so fascinating. Some people have the sort of like 
Everyone's, God, God, God happily made all the nations blind just so that they would need missionaries. That's really not what Paul's saying here. Paul's saying God's intention was to make himself findable. That's bad grammar again. And his hope was that people would seek him and find him. And here's the reality. Those who seek the Lord find the Lord. And those who find the Lord obtain life. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm just keenly aware of how we can drift in a form of godliness that isn't authentic seeking. And you know it's not authentic seeking because we're bearing bad fruit which reveals that there's something missing at the root level, at the heart level. Are you tracking? One of my favorite psalms, Psalm 20, one of my favorite verses is Psalm 25, 14. The Lord confides in those who fear him. He makes his covenant known to them. Who does he confide in? Right, so that would mean that he does not confide in those who have no fear of the Lord. I, I, I don't know, I bump into people who think that God sees everyone the same. That he's not interactive and responsive to what's in a heart. To say that he loves everyone is true. To say that he interacts without favoritism is true. But he resists the proud... And gives grace to the humble. And Mary is so happy when she gets pregnant. Jesus' mom. And declares that God, in giving her little Mary, little Mary, poor little Mary, that God has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. That God, of course there's no favoritism with God. And of course he loves everyone. But he is interactive and responsive and what is in a heart will move God to very different responses. Easy pulpit. (laughs) Jesus said, don't waste what's holy, Matthew 7. Don't waste what is holy on people who are unholy. The Lord doesn't. Don't throw your pearls to pigs. The Lord doesn't. They will trample the pearls, then turn back and attack you. Then the very next sentence he says, keep on asking and you'll receive. Keep on seeking and you will find. Keep on knocking and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives. Everyone who seeks find. And to everyone who knocks the door will be opened. There, there is a, a divine life that God wants to give to everyone, but he gives it to those who want it. He wants to share his intimacy, his voice, his love, his presence, his power, his kingdom, his treasures. He wants to share them with everyone, but he does share them with those who treasure and value them enough to set other things aside and make themselves 
available. To put themselves in a position to receive. And a life, a lifestyle of seeking God will be filled with peace and power. A lifestyle of seeking God, a daily pursuit. And this is not legalism. This is faith. If you don't believe that he's a rewarder of those that seek him. Y'all know that verse? Without faith, it's impossible to please God because those who come to God must first believe that he exists and that he's a rewarder of those that what? Diligently seek him. So seeking God is like the first evidence that faith is there. Because grace is not the opposite of effort or activity. It's the opposite of earning. I love that I'm not under the law. But the reason I love that I'm not under the law is not because I have sin that I really want to get away with. The reason I love that I'm not under the law is that I can have a good relationship with God without needing to measure up or being measured up constantly. That I'm not in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil anymore. I've been grafted into the tree of life, who is Jesus. What a relief to know that I can come and I can root, I can become rooted. I can't say I root myself, but I can become rooted so deeply in his love that I'm not, I'm not ruled by ego and selfishness and greed, flesh, and I'm not ruled by rules, like what some people call religion. And as as Garth would rightly point out, true religion is keeping oneself unstained from the world and caring for widows and orphans in their distress. But what we often call religion is this man-made system. Like, like, you know, know, downstairs, I don't know, one of the points for come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, is like, Jesus is so much better than Mennonitism. Jesus is so much better than being a Southern Baptist. Jesus is so much better than being a Roman Catholic. All of our best attempts, some of them are really good and have a lot of strengths, but they're still temples made by human hands and Jesus is where the real life is. He's the real access point to the intimacy of Abba's heart. He's the real access point to the power of the Holy Spirit who brings true life. You tracking? I'm not sure I am. Luke 10, 21, at that same time, Jesus was filled with the joy of the Holy Spirit and he said, oh, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, thank you. It's so cool to see into the psychology of Jesus. Like, what is he so excited that he involuntarily breaks out and prays over? Thank you for hiding these things from those who think themselves wise and clever and for revealing them to the childlike Yes, Father, it brought you pleasure to do it like this. That is so fascinating. Just yesterday, someone was talking to me and they were like, all sin's the same to God. And one of these days, I'm going to preach an entire sermon to reveal how that is a partial biblical truth misconstrued. But today's not that day. 
God, you hide yourself. You hide yourself from certain attitudes and you're drawn to other attitudes. It would be a hard word if we had no power. It would be a hard word if we weren't capable of steering our hearts. It would be a hard word if we were not capable of saying, I'm going to own that my heart's not in the right place and I'm going to do what I can do to indirectly position myself to have God meet me and change my heart. God, you hide yourself from wise and learned. You reveal yourself to little children. If you get invited to somebody's house for dinner and you go because it's polite and you don't want to offend them, right? You show up because you got invited and you didn't want them to feel hurt. You show up. And you stay, how long do you stay if you came out of politeness? You stay the same length that you have to to figure out. Like, if I leave too early, they'll be like, you didn't really want to come. If you stay too late, you know, then you won't enjoy your evening because you didn't want to be there in the first place. I like to joke sometimes when I'm late. Sorry, I didn't make it on time. I just valued my last few minutes of not being here so much more than being here. (laughs) I'm naughty. But at some point, like imagine this is God's house. Like some, so people show up to his house and they come out of politeness because they don't want to be rude. And then they leave when the rudeness thing is, you know, they've fulfilled their obligation to social protocols. But some people stay because they didn't come not to be rude. They came because they really wanted to be there. They enjoy being much with him. And when everyone who's left, because they don't have to be there, has gone, I just picture God saying... I want to show you guys something. Rubbing his hands together, kind of like my dad always used to before we would, when he was getting into something really exciting. He, he was funny like this. This is kind of what, what I remember from him growing up. If dad got really excited, he would do the excessively fast hand rub. Like he was going to try to start a fire with his hands. I kind of picture God doing that. Once all the people who are, who are gone, out of polite reasons, they're gone. And those who just want to be there are left. God's like, I got something I want to show you guys. He goes into the, hold on, bunny. He goes into the back room and he grabs this box, which is wrapped to keep dust out of it. So he unwraps this box and he unlocks this thing and he brings something out and he takes it out. And it's the thing he delights in. It's, the, it's like his most precious thing. He's, he's super stoked about this. And he brings it out. And he shares it with people who he's like, I know that you, because you love what I love, because your interests and mine have become aligned through familiarity, that you're going to value this like I value this. These other folk, they would give me the polite, oh yeah, that's really great. It's really cool. Mm -hmm. Good for you. Huh. You know what I'm saying? Like when I take people back into my walk-in closet and I show them my cologne collection. (laughs) Most people think I'm insane. You know? Like, legit. My mom was like, you have an issue. This is a compulsion. 
Thanks, Mom. Appreciate that. But God shows, God, God comes, goes to the back room, and he brings out that which is most precious to him. And, and they, you know, you think when you're in the room, you think he's showing it to you just so you can say, that's amazing. And then he's going to take it back and put it in its box. But here's what happens when you're intimate with him. When you're there because you want him. And when familiarity with him in that place has so affected you, changed you, that you now think like he thinks and want what he wants. He actually hands it to you. Are you leaving? I'm not leaving because I'm so like Bless you. It's all good. Have fun with that, Bunny. Bless you. Thanks for embarrassing Phoenix right there. That was classic. (laughs) But you think he's going to put it back in the box and say, isn't that cool? And then you say, that is cool. But instead, he entrusts it to you and says, take good care of it. And he says things like, don't hide it in a box. And you're like, what? And he says things like, let it shine before all men. And he says things like, now use this as my ambassadors. And he says things like, freely you've received, now freely give. And he says things like, as the Father has loved me, now so I've loved you. Now remain in it. And he says things like, if you abide in me, and my word abides in you, you can ask whatever you want and the Father will do it. Because the things that, that drove Jesus in life, when we seek him and find him and walk closely with him, the things that drove Jesus in life, the things that gave him such great surrender, the things that gave him such great confidence and faith and peace and joy, and the things that enabled him to open his heart wide to human suffering. That's weird, right? He's... Anointed with the oil of joy more than anyone. No one's happier than Jesus. No, one's ever, no one who's ever lived has been anointed with more joy than Jesus. And he's a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. He's not, oh, he's not closing his heart to people's pain. And he's not closing his heart to the goodness of God that's in the world. Like that, The stuff that, that is the secret, precious, most precious stuff that Jesus has which, by the way, is his walk with his father and this walk with his spirit and, his, and his, these, these kingdom treasures he carries. As we seek him and find him, these treasures become our treasures. He shares the secrets of his heart with us. He makes his covenant known to us. This is why I'm like, you can't, I don't know if I can overstate the priority of a lifestyle of seeking and finding and then more seeking and more finding. And for me, that takes the shape of every three to four months or so, I need to get my little bottom out of Delaware. It's smaller than it used to be. Lost a little bit of weight. But I need to get myself out of Delaware and into some environment that is explicitly charismatic with all the mess that that is. Because for some odd reason, the Lord has ordained that I meet Jesus best among that group of people. Don't ask me why. And he's ordained that I do my boring exercise of reading another book of the Bible and marking it off my list. And there's life in it for me. 
Don't ask me why. I don't know. And taking long walks and just talking out loud to him. These are, how, these are my spiritual pathways, as Garth would put it. I don't know what yours are, but I promise you the Lord's designed you with an appetite for God. And if you don't seek to feast on him, you will not experience him like he died to bring you. And rose. And reigns. Jeremiah 29, 13. You will seek me and you will find me when you search for me with all your heart. That's, uh, that's not intended to land, you know, as, a, as a, you know, a rule or a judgment or like a, not good enough. You know, it's, it's an invitation, but it's also an explanation. I, I wonder if you were to pay attention to the long arc of your life, pay attention to the last five years of your life, I mean, really think about the last five years of your life. When were you doing really well? When was there peace? When was there glory? When was there presence? When were you in close fellowship, bearing good fruit because your heart was having good fellowship with Abba, with Jesus? Usually, if you're willing to take responsibility, there were some things that you were doing to position yourself for that. Don't lie to me. You know what I'm saying? I've never seen anyone drift into a life of vibrant intimacy with God. I have never seen it. If you've seen it, I doubt it. I guess. Hebrews 2, so we must listen more carefully to the truth we have heard or we may drift away from it. I want to make one quick observation about, do I? A lot of times we develop bad doctrine because we're reacting to someone who had good doctrine but didn't have intimacy with God. I'm going to say that again. Sometimes when we develop bad doctrine, It's out of reaction to someone who has good doctrine but doesn't have good fruit. Do I need to say it one more time differently? Well, let me be more clear. I'm in a generation that is bailing on what the scripture teaches about male and female and so I would call it biblical sexuality, manhood and womanhood. My generation is bailing on what the Bible actually teaches clearly about that Because they have seen, I think, this is me guessing, I'm just guessing, I could be wrong, they have seen the people who actually believe what scripture says behave in such a way that they don't feel it is loving. So when they don't see the love, since only love is credible, by the way, love is the only thing that is credible. Like I was trying to write a song about that, like trying to play with the word incredible. Like saying your love is incredible except it's actually the only thing that is credible. Playing with the word incredible, incredible. Like I, I got into following Jesus because of the beauty of Jesus. Not the threat of hell. And I feel like I'm normal. 
Because a threat of hell might keep me away from certain things for a couple of months before I really go back to them because this isn't satisfying because we live from our heart. But it was the satisfying beauty and goodness and truth of who Jesus is as a person that's kept me seeking him. And I suspect that there's a generation that wants to seek him but also redefine him because they haven't seen those who have sound doctrine have vibrant union. I could be wrong, guys. Can you see why that was an aside? Like somehow, I'm on Twitter, I'm on a bunch of social media, and I see all these people, these younger folks, these younger believers, and they're just like super angry about this Nashville statement. You ever heard of this? People talking about the Nashville statement is evil, the Nashville statement is bad, the Nashville statement is arrogant, the Nashville statement is judgment, it's not love, it's not Jesus. And I was like, I'd have never heard of this Nashville statement. But you have slandered it so much that now I am curious. So I Google Nashville statement and the first four links to the thing are like, why the Nashville statement is terrible and evil and judgmental. And I was like, that's boring. I don't care about any of that. Finally, I get to like the Nashville statement. Somebody's probably Googling it right now in the room. Uh, Connected to our Wi-Fi. Uh, So (laughs) then I go to the Nashville statement and it says, sign the Nashville statement. I was like, easy killer. I don't know what that is yet. So then below it, there's a tiny little link that's like, read the Nashville statement. I'm like, maybe that one should be the big link anyway. So I click that. It's like 17 articles or something like this, and they're all affirmations and denials. And I'm expecting it to be like, people are stupid and we hate them. You know, it's like, you expect it to be really bad because everyone's mad about it. So I read it and I'm out loud saying, this is beautiful, this is brilliant. This is such a great summary of what scripture actually teaches. I'm out loud talking like, wow, I don't know who wrote this, but this is really, really great. I get to the end of it and I'm like, I still have not found anything offensive. All I have found is real intense bravery and purity of doctrine. So I click over and I sign the thing and I attached our church's name to it. (laughs) So, okay. You guys picked a fight and I didn't know about it, so I joined a team. <laughs> but I'm wondering about that. Like, if, if us affirming that God's design of man and woman is good, if, is, that seems so basic. But I'm wondering if there's something really missing. Like, if you can see lives of the beauty of what it is, manhood and womanhood, and the beauty of being single... And following, like I'm just, you know what I mean? Like I remember back in college totally, I'm sorry, this is like totally an aside, but I feel like this is just so culturally relevant. Back in college, I had a professor, and he, my philosophy professor, he said, we, we speak in sound bites. We're against it. And we so misrepresent truth. Because an answer is not fully Christian. An answer is not fully Christian unless it's a full answer. So we, there's something missing of painting the beautiful Design And that takes time to see this beautiful big picture that, that God's trying to... But instead it's like, we're against that. We're protecting that. We're making a rule against that. We're making a law against that. And I've also noticed this, that people who... Well, humans, we decide with our heart and we rationalize with our mind. I gotta shut this down. All right, that's enough for today. Let's pray. Go ahead and stand. 
If you know me, I can talk for three hours. And I don't need to today. If while I was speaking, you felt your soul saying, I am hungry for the Lord, I want you to not stuff that down and act socially acceptable today. Where, where you are, I'm not going to need to call you to the front, but where you are, um, I, I want you to verbalize that hunger to the Lord. There's something really helpful about this. I have a pretty simple dream for Gateway, and that is Gateway be a place where, our, where our, the purity of our authentic intimacy with God becomes a catalyst that when we gather together, the Lord sees the hunger, the expectancy, and his presence can't stay away. I've always found these passages in the Old Testament, of all places, to be so beautiful. They commemorate this tabernacle or this temple when Moses commemorates or, or installs, whatever you want to call it, the tabernacle, when Solomon, uh, whatever your word is, what's the word, what's the deal with grammar today? Darn it, English. Just preach it in tongues and let the angels interpret. That wouldn't help people. Solomon prays, the cloud falls, the glory fills the temple, the priests can't even stand. Moses, I don't know if you noticed this, Moses, the same exact thing happened to him, except for it was the tent of meeting with him. He, he, you know, whatever that word is, the tent, the cloud comes, the glory fills, and Moses can't stand. And I read those, and I'm like, Lord, I want that. I want that at Gateway. I, I want to see it with my own physical eyes. I want my kids to see your glory physically with their actual literal eyes. And I mark that in my Bible and I put the time and the date. And if you don't want that, why not? What marks us apart from all the peoples of the world, says Moses, when God's like, I'll send an angel instead. It's your presence, Abba. If you don't go with us, I'm not going anywhere. What's going to make us unique? Where's the life? It's your presence. In your presence, Psalm 1611 is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. If we're called to be rooted and grounded in love and bear fruit, we cannot do that without your love. Flowing, flowing, flowing. So my dream for Gateway is real simple. Your hunger and my hunger meet and it's a catalyst that God cannot stay away from and his presence falls and bodies are healed, marriages are restored, anxiety dissipates, people who don't know his love come into the fullness of his love, sins fall off, guilt falls off. False understanding and human understanding and every high and lofty thing that builds itself up to resist what is in fact good for people gets leveled. Let's pray. God, this week, this week, bring to our remembrance to seek you daily. Speak to each heart, God, as to how to best meet the grace of God with our personality, with our stage of life, with our scheduling limitations, with our sometimes broken hearts, 
sometimes bipolar disorder, sometimes fighting parents, sometimes <laughs> mess-making, whining children. We refuse to make excuses, God. You aren't making excuses for us. You are inviting us. You are saying, come, 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 come. You will seek me. You will find me. You will drink deeply of my love and be satisfied. Talk to him. All right, I'm going to dismiss you with a benediction. That doesn't mean you have to stop praying if you're in the middle of something good happening. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.